Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Today, I want to start by asking the question, what makes you angry? That's the title of my message today, if you're taking notes. What makes you angry? Now, I'm not just talking about your everyday kind of frustrations that you go through, you know, because our first answers living here in Joburg would be when taxis cut through traffic, you know, or when there's load shedding, or when you buy a big packet of chips and you open it up and you find out that they could have fit it into a small packet of chips right at the bottom, right? I'm not, I'm not talking if you're married uh, wives about your husbands leaving the toilet seats up. They're grown men. Why don't they get this, you know? Or your kids, no matter how many times you tell them not to draw on the walls, they still draw on the walls. Um, or if you're a Springbok fan like me, every single time, why does it happen so often that we get reft by French referees, right? Why do we get French referees every single important game? I don't know. So I'm not talking about those kinds of frustrations today. I'm talking about a deep, divine discontent, a discomfort that you feel in your heart when your path, when you, when you cross the paths of injustice, when you notice something in this world, when you notice something in people's lives, when you see the brokenness, when you see the meaninglessness, when you, when you hear of the violence, when you experience injustice in this world, something in you that rises up and says, I have to be a part of the solution. I cannot be apathetic. I cannot sit by idly while this continues. I'm moved deep within me to make a difference. It's often almost a compassion an experience of deep inner compassion that says, I have to help people. And this is often a clue to the calling that God has for your life. When people ask me, how would I discover my destiny? How do I know what God has called me to? If they have no idea, one of my first questions to them is, well, what makes you angry? What upsets you? What bothers you? What's wrong in this world that you feel that you want to be a part of making a difference in that area? It is a clue to your calling. Personally, for me, besides for French referees, which is right up there, the things that bother me are when people live life and go through all of life not knowing the grace of God that is available to them not knowing how much God loves them, not knowing how much He cares, not knowing the great calling with which they have been called. What angers me often is Christians that go through the motions, that just have developed a habit of religion and, and tradition rather than engaging wholeheartedly with the plan of God for their lives the opportunity to make a difference, the opportunity to step into something that is bigger than themselves, to be a part of what God is doing on this earth. And instead they say, no church to me is just about, you know, going and hearing a message and then going to lunch and then getting on with life in my own strength. As my wife and I were praying, coming to church today, we were praying for people and we were praying that, and this is part of what, what stirs inside of our hearts, that what we do here is we come to offer our lives to God, wholehearted surrender, 
not just the parts that feel like good advice, not just the parts that feel like self-help, not just the parts that, that you know, seem like they may be helpful, but then we discard the rest. No, something where we, like Isaiah, stand before God and say, here I am, God, all of me, surrendered, send me, use me, let me be a part of something bigger. Because you cannot live a big life if you are living for yourself. We can only live big lives when we say yes to the call of God and allow Him to move us. To, it, it's painful. It's painful sometimes. You know that the word passion in Latin is the same word as suffering. You know, when we watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's the suffering of the Christ. Those words are synonymous. Because when you have a vision, when God has given you a stirring in your heart, you will be willing to suffer in order to live out that passion. The Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He had the vision of people reconciled with God, and it moved him to the point where he was willing to suffer the agony of the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to the Father. That's what it looks like when you begin to be stirred. It's not always a comfortable thing. It's a painful thing, oftentimes. It requires sacrifice, but it is a joyful sacrifice because you know that you are in the flow of what you were created to do. There is nothing better than knowing that right now I am in the center, as hard as it may be, of the thing I was created to do. And you were not created just to you know, work every day for your salary at the end of the month and then go home and watch Netflix until it's the next day again. That is not the purpose of your life. In fact, that is often how the enemy neutralizes your life, getting you just into that zone where you feel, I just have to survive, and you never step into the bigger life. So maybe we should stir up some of that anger on the inside of us. What is it that, that causes me to want to make a difference? This is what angers me. When people don't know this and instead of living big lives, they often waste lives on temporal fulfillment. When we see ideologies invade our culture that lead us into ineffectiveness, when we see the enemy come against the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of family and the sanctity of the fabric of society and the sanctity of the church, it angers me. It also angers me when South Africans support the All Blacks. It's just not right. It's not right. You need to repent. It's not okay. And people might say, well, you know, pastors shouldn't get angry. And that's true. I mean, it, it's true to, you know, to an extent. A fruit of the Spirit is kindness and patience and long-suffering and self-control. And these are things that I'm trusting Jesus to help me with. So, you know, we know the Bible even talks about God as being slow to anger. So again, I'm not just talking about some off-the-cuff I've just lost my temper in a moment or I got angry at some situation, which is human, but something that God helps us to grow in. I'm talking about a divine discontent, and it is a form of passion. The Greek word actually for it in the Bible, uh, 
when it speaks about zeal in the Bible, when it talks about passion, when it talks about the jealousy of God, is the word zealous. The word zealous, which is an onomatopoeic word. In other words, a word that represents a sound. And it's the sound in the Greek of water boiling over. It's actually the sound of, of, of a kettle that's boiled to the point where, or a pot of water that's boiling to the point where it's now boiling over, it's running over. So when it talks about this kind of, of righteous passion, this righteous zeal, when the Bible says that we as Christians are to be fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord, it talks about something in you that is heating up to the point where it consumes you and it boils over. It bubbles over in your life. Zealous is the word. That's the kind of anger we're talking about here. It's used to describe passion. And this is the most beautiful thing. It's used to describe the passion that God has for you. Have you ever wondered, does, does God really care? Like God is too busy having meetings with pastors and prophets and, you know, the guys that are out there, maybe presidents, the important people, and, and I'm just here kind of, you know, trying to get by in my daily life. And you're like, does God actually care? Is he actually engaged? Does he actually see what I'm going through? Well, the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. Jealous, zealous, zealous. It comes from the same word. I remember Oprah speaking about this many years ago, saying, I have an issue with the God of the Old Testament because it says he's jealous. That seems petty. It's the furthest thing, Oprah, from petty. It's a bubbling over of passion because God loves people to the point that he cares about their lives, that he desires to see them fulfilled and satisfied, knowing their identity, knowing his grace, knowing his love. And that is the heart that God has for you today. Every person here today, if you came in here wondering, where do I fit in? How, you know, what is, what is my status before God? The answer is, he's passionately boiling over with love for you, with zeal for your life. This is how God feels. And so God even gets angry at points. But it's this kind of anger. It's a, it's a passion. God is a warrior. He's jealous for his people. And he steps in. It's why he stepped in through the person of Jesus. His love boils over for you. We see it in John chapter 2, which is the main scripture I want to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up at John chapter number 2. And I'm going to read from verse 13. Because here in the Bible, we have an angry Jesus. And I remember when I was once younger, and I think I was in a community group, and we were discussing the scripture, and people said that basically Jesus doesn't really get angry, that we can misinterpret the scripture. And they were like, I remember the, the one girl said, no, it's not that Jesus got angry. It's more like he was like, oh, come on, guys. You know, like, I'm like, we'll read the scripture now. But he made a whip out of cords. You know, you know that's some premeditated anger right there. You know what I mean? He's, he's acting on that. That's not... Come on, guys, I got this whip, so don't make me use it. You know, it's not, Jesus was passionate, boiling over, consumed in this moment with a heart for people. In John 2, verse 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them out all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he, he told those who sold pigeons to take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or a den of robbers. His disciples remembered then that it was said, this was a prophecy through the Psalms, through David, it was said, zeal, zealous for your house will consume me. Jesus is passionate about his church. And the church is not a building. It's not a system. And it's not a religion. It's a people. It's a community. He passionately defends his church. The gates of hell will come against the church, but it shall not prevail because Jesus builds his church, his people. You can misinterpret that scripture if you don't read it in the other gospels as being about commercialism, that Jesus was you know, anti-capitalist and anti-commercialism. And so a lot of churches take that and they say, okay, you should never sell anything in church. Like don't sell coffees, don't sell muffins, don't sell t-shirts or resources. When I was younger, I worked for a Christian youth publication, a youth magazine. We had thousands of subscribers across the country and we went to this big Christian event. It was a concert and there was all kinds of bands playing and we were selling magazines and signing people up for subscriptions in the lobby uh, kind of, you know, promoting the magazine. And it was good stuff. We were able to talk about real issues and, and all the rest. And I remember there was a woman that came running from the other side of the room. I'm not sure if her name was Corin. I didn't catch her name. But she came running. But when she came running, it was the strangest thing because I was like, am I dreaming? Is it getting late? What is happening? Because it didn't seem to compute in my mind. Because she put her hands behind her like this and ran like that, right? Like, at me. So I'm like, is, what is going on? This woman is coming at me like this. And it reminded me of, you know, those lap wings, those plovers, when you go near their eggs, that's how it felt. And she came and she came right up into my face and shouted at me saying that we've turned God's house into a den of robbers because we're selling magazines. We should give them away for free. And I only got one sentence out before she ran off. But what I said was, but then we wouldn't be able to afford to publish them. Like we can't, this costs money to print and we wouldn't be able to print them if, okay, you're gone. All right, so you know, it was, people think that Jesus was angry about stuff being sold in the church and that isn't the case. We get more context for it in Matthew's account. In Matthew 21 verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, this is why Jesus is upset. He's telling them why he's upset. It's going against God's vision for what the church, what the temple was supposed to be. My house shall be called a house of prayer. What is prayer? It's connecting with God. It's being reunited with God. It's fellowship and communication and worship with God. It's being able to bring all of your brokenness and all of your sickness and all of your, your longings to God and saying, God, I hand this to you. It's an exchange of grace. But these people had turned it into a religion where people needed to pay and perform in order to get to God. 
In other words, Jesus was angered by the fact that instead of the church and the temple being the place where people connect with God, it became the place where people are divided from God unless they do certain things. This is the difference between the spirit of the letter and the spirit of God, the spirit of grace. The one separates us, it brings death. The other one brings life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And if I told you that you can't be right with God today unless you give money or unless you go and buy something, I'm making you believe that you cannot be right with God. And this is the one thing that Jesus is like, okay, this is Jesus's like French referee level right here. He's like, I've had enough. And he goes and makes a whip of cords. I am turning the system upside down. I'm turning the system upside down. He said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him. Now all of a sudden, the people that were blind and lame and had no money, oftentimes blind and lame people in those days, would have been beggars unless they had somebody to look after them. Now the beggars with no money can come because you don't have to pay the price. Jesus is now here. He's the one who pays the price. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. That's the purpose of the church. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple. So all of a sudden now there's a kid's ministry. Can you, can you imagine a kid's ministry un, under the Pharisees, what that would look like? Study, you know, it would just be like horrible. But now all of a sudden there's freedom in the house. And the kids are running around shouting. And they must have been some theological kids because they're like, Hosanna to the son of David. Inspired in the moment, there's children running around. The lame and the blind are being brought before Jesus. Healings are happening. Miracles are happening. God is working. Grace is experienced. This is the vision of the church. This is the passion of Christ. To see people restored. But the religious people, they were indignant. No, it's not how it's supposed to be. This is the real anger that Jesus felt. He felt it towards the religious system that created barriers, keeping people from coming to God. In John 2 verse 18, just a few verses later, if we go back to John, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing these things? Like, what authority do you have? You know, how, how can you come into our temple that's been here for thousands of years and you feel that you can just, you know, overturn all the tables and upset the whole system and, and you can do this whole thing? What, what gives you the right? What sign do you have giving you this authority? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. How beautiful. This is actually a moment where Jesus is declaring that the old system of religion is now defunct. It is no, no longer how things work. How things now work is, I am the place where people connect with God. I, it's my presence. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not through a church building that you meet with Jesus. It's not through a temple. It's not through a religious rite or, or program or system. It's by you standing face to face with the Son of God that loves you and died for you, reconnecting with Him and being reconciled to your Father. That's the place. And then it says that the church today, this place, us as a community, is His body. We are the temple. Not, not in the Old Testament kind of way, but this community is the place where people can come and experience Jesus, even though we're imperfect, even though we don't do things perfectly all the time. It's still the place that by God's grace, His Spirit resides and people can experience God. It was, he was declaring the end of religion here, Jesus. All the man-made attempts of being made right with God and He's instituting Himself as the temple himself as the presence of God, the power of God, and the place where people can connect to God. It is a house of prayer. That's the passion that Jesus has. And he is so passionate about this that he gives his life to that end. None of us should ever doubt whether or not God loves us. Because the Bible tells us in Romans that it is by, that, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that even when we were yet sinners, he died for us. That's the gospel. That's the message. That's the good news. And so Jesus becomes the chief cornerstone of the church. This is what church is about. That's why we say here at Anchor Church, our number one value is that it is all about Jesus. We didn't bring you into this room so that we can tell you to try harder to be better so that you can, we can give you some self-help tips in, in, in order to try and fix yourself. No, we put our faith in the one who does the work by his grace. It's a surrender to Jesus where we go, God, I can't, but you can. This is the power of our relationship with God. He is therefore Jesus, the chief cornerstone of this new temple, of this new church. In 1 Peter 2, verse 6 to 7, it says, for it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a person, Jesus. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the principle here, very simply, is that in these days when an edifice was built or any kind of a wall, any kind of a building, the most important stone that would be laid would be the chief cornerstone. And that was the stone that was to give guidance, to give the plumb line for the rest of the building. The whole, the rest of the building would be built around that stone. They would find their place according to that stone. They would find their purpose and their meaning according to that stone. And the truth for your life is if you're going to live a big life, you need to have the chief cornerstone firmly secured in your life. Because from there, you get your direction. From there, you get your foundation. From there, you're able to build this big life. The cornerstone was usually the largest and most solid and most carefully constructed stone in any edifice. 
and it was the foundation. Jesus is the foundation of the church, and everything else aligns to it. So we must build, because we're called to build, right? We'll look at that in a, in a second now. We're called to build our lives. Life isn't just, you can go, I have Jesus as the chief cornerstone, so good, I'm done. That's what a lot of people do. They go, well, I put my faith in Jesus, so I'm done. I'm good. I've, I've done what I needed to do. I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. I'm fine. No, that's just the foundation. Upon that foundation, we are called to build by God's grace. We're called to partake. We're called to participate. We're called to be activated in His grace, in His mission, in, in, in our identity in Him. This is how the Bible puts it in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. We only work by His grace. It's impossible for us to do anything without His grace. Anything, in fact, that we do without His grace is sin. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. It's in your own strength. It's self-righteousness. It's not the gospel. It's not Jesus. But when we participate with what God is doing in our lives, we become fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of of God, which is given to me, Paul writing here, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. He's saying, I've come and I've preached Jesus and I've, and I've in your hearts, through this truth, I've laid the foundation of Christ. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Let every one of us watch how we build on the foundation that Jesus has become to us. For no other foundation can Anyone lay, then that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. In other words, there's options. In other words, building your life looks like going to Builder's Warehouse or Chamberlain's or wherever you go to get your, you know, your hardware goods. I feel like I've spent way too much time in those spaces the last few weeks. But you go there and you can choose what you're going to build with. You can choose the wood, the hay, the straw, the cheap. Let's just go with the cheapest. I don't want this to cost me too much. Let's go with whatever's the cheapest. Or from a place of value, you can say, no, no, wait a minute. I'm going to build something costly with my life. This is an analogy for what we do with our lives. Some things are not eternal. Some things will not cross over the divide of the temporal into the eternal. Specifically, the wood, the hay, and the straw. It's only the things that we build with that are precious, that are costly. The gold, the silver, the precious stones. When we lay those things before God, when we build a life with those kinds of materials, we begin to live a life that has eternal value eternal value. Big life, eternal value. Each one's work will become clear, verse 13, for the day, capital D, the day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, what it's saying here is that there is a testing. What did you do with your life? Did you build things that are eternal or temporal? 
And obviously the idea here is that there is a, a heat, there is a fire, there is that zeal, there's that passion that we travel through as we head into eternity. And many of the things we've spent so much of our time trying to accrue and trying to achieve won't cross over. This is not a question about salvation. I'm not saying if you haven't done enough good things, you're not gonna make it into heaven. It says, even if everything you've done in this life is useless and burns up the moment you step into eternity, you're still saved. Did you get that in there? You're still saved. But when we live eternal lives, we get to carry those things into eternity. And so it carries a reward. That's a big life. You know what a big life is? One that goes beyond this life. One that goes beyond just what we can accrue in this world. So many people, so many, countless people, the sole purpose of their lives is to accrue wealth, is to get stuff. None of that stuff is gonna make it into heaven. Do you know that in heaven, the streets are paved with gold? Not because it is so, you know, worth so much, but because it's worth so little. Big things we get to carry into the eternity. Living a life with eternal perspective is what we're called to. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that his spirit dwells in you? You see, Jesus is the foundation, but each of us need to see. We need to take heed of how we build. This is not a question of whether or not you're saved. I want that to be clear but what you're doing with the salvation and the grace that God has given you. And it's like, I love that last verse because Paul sums it up with a passionate plea here at the end of this verse. He says, do you not know? Are you unaware of the fact that you as a people are not just here to come to church on a Sunday and hear a message and go home? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's individual, yes, our bodies are temples, but he's speaking in this context. It's corporate. It's this community. It's the people sitting in these chairs right now. We are a temple of his spirit. Do you know? We house the presence of God and our heart, like Jesus's heart, is that others can come and experience that presence, experience that grace, experience that truth. This is what the house of God is. And Jesus says, a zeal for your house has consumed me. Together we are a spiritual house. Together we are a New Testament temple. So that this may be a house of prayer, a house of grace, a house of connection, a house of repentance, a house of people finding God and discovering their purpose and their place in Him. Here at Anchor Church, the foundation has been laid. And no other person can lay any other foundation except that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. But every single person sitting here today, and even the people that may be watching that couldn't be here today, if you're a member of this church, if you're a member of this house, if you're a member of Christ, you are a brick in the wall. This place is not Yes, we have bricks all around us here. That's not the bricks that builds the church. You're the brick that builds the church. You're the brick with which Jesus builds his church. In 1 Peter 2 verse 4, it says, As you come to him, to Jesus, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So as you come to this cornerstone, Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is a spiritual house. That's why we say, this is home. This is home. Because we are living stones building this place, a spiritual home, a spiritual house, housing the presence of God. But Peter, in writing this, goes one step further. He says, not only are you the house itself, not only is this community the place itself, but you are also a holy priesthood. He says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The priests served in the temple and stood in the gap between God and the people. In serving the temple, their, their whole purpose in being there was to minister to God and to be the bridge that connects people to God. Now, Jesus is that bridge that has finally bridged the gap between people and God. But we serve Jesus in this house as a holy priesthood. So people say, People say, well, I'm, I'm serving the church, or I'm serving at church, or, or you know, the pastors asked me to serve, or the, you know, the, my team leader asked me to do something for them. That's rubbish. If you're a part of this team, if you're a part of this church, if you serve in any way, you only serve one person, and that's Jesus Christ. You're serving the Lord. And the Bible says, be fervent, zealous, Serve the Lord. Be full of zeal. Be full of passion in how you serve. So when we worship, we worship passionately. When we give, we give passionately. When we, when we serve, we serve passionately. When we help people, when we love people, when we preach the gospel, we do it passionately. Because there's something that's been stirred on the inside of us. And this allows us to make spiritual sacrifices. That's what those are acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. You know that without Jesus Christ, none of those things were acceptable. Because if you don't have Jesus, if you're not doing it from the platform of Jesus, your serving is an attempt to save yourself. I'm right with God because, you know, I serve in church. I was laughing yesterday when I was chatting about this with my wife because it doesn't matter how wayward a person becomes later on in life, and I've met some people, older people, that have just, don't go to church, don't serve God, live completely differently to what the Word of God uh, speaks of as a Christian life. And you know what they all tell me without fail? Yeah, I, once, I was a youth leader once. How is every person who's ever lived used to be a youth leader? And it's somehow they're justifying themselves, saying, I, I, I was there before, but now I'm just down here. Now, when we, when we engage with God, with Jesus, we receive His grace. The grace of God in our lives. Without the grace of God, when, when Cain and Abel came before, before God, offering sacrifices, do you know why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted? Because he was the one who worked the ground. He tilled the ground. He worked for those, 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 that offering that he brought before God. And he put it before God saying, look at what I have done for you. The Bible says God could not respect Cain's offering. Self-righteousness. 
But Abel just brought a lamb. He didn't, I mean, he looked after the lamb, but he didn't produce the lamb. He just found one in the field and said, here we go, God. It was done in faith. So we are now the people that not in order to get favor with God, not in order to be right with God, but because we're right with God, now we get to offer something different. Sacrifices like Abel, that's acceptable to God. So what you now do, God is able to receive. And like this passage tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a reward. And I always think that this is why it's grace upon grace. Because God gives us the grace to do the action and make the sacrifice, and then he rewards it for us as well. You know, it makes no sense. But there's a double reward. There's a double grace in all of this. That's what we get to do. We get to offer these sacrifices as active participants in worship, not merely passive in the building, but active like the priests in the worship. Whenever, when I was growing up and whenever we moved into a new home, my dad had this bad habit that when he went into a home, he changes everything, right? So he's like, no, we'll just break down this wall and then we'll change these pillars and then we'll shift this over there and then we'll build a garage outside. He never left a house alone. There was always a building project going on. I think it was God preparing us for this moment right now. And I remember one statement that he would often make as he went through with con contractors through the, through the house. He would say, we cannot change this wall. We cannot knock this wall out because it is a weight-bearing wall. Just that term, weight-bearing wall. And as a kid, when I heard that, every time I walked past that wall in the house, I had a little bit of extra reverence for it. I was like, thank you, wall. You bear weight in this place, right? Thank you, wall. A weight-bearing wall wall, not just, not just a brick, not just kind of skirting by, but carrying weight. God says to Jeremiah, we looked at this in the beginning of the year, in Jeremiah 1 verse 18, he says, stand at attention while I prepare you for your work. Do you know that God has a work for you? I am making you as impregnable as a castle, immovable as a steel post, Listen to this, solid as a concrete block wall. That's what God is doing in your life right now. As you put your faith in Jesus, he is causing you to become as solid as a concrete block wall so that you too can be a pillar in the house, so that you too can be a weight-bearing wall in the house of God. You wanna live a big life? Bear weight in the kingdom. Build with gold and silver and precious stone. Build in a way that will carry through into eternity. Stop worrying about what do I have and what do I have left and what do I do and how much is it gonna cost and pay the price because God's grace is there. The reward, the return is far greater than anything we can put in. It fills us with purpose and it gives us the opportunity to live great lives. I know that there are people in this church right now and I, I could call you out by name. And it's, I promise you, it's not the people with the most time available. It's not the people with 
the most talent or the most amount of skill. It's not the people with the most amount of money. It's just normal people. But through faithfulness, they become weight-bearing walls in the house of God. What an aspiration. Of all the things we aspire to, how incredible to aspire to be a pillar in God's house. It's the opportunity that we have. I believe this is a key to living a full life on earth and receiving a reward in heaven. Living all out for Jesus. Building on that foundation. So church, let's be that house. Let's be those living stones. Let's be that holy priesthood. Let's make those sacrifices. Let's become the space where others can connect with God, where others can experience His grace, can experience His zeal, His bubbling over love for each one of them. Let's do that in this city and as many other cities as God may send us to. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me this morning as we pray?